Hello and welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise or interest for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. So this week, my guest is Ram Sudaretti, uh, who is pretty universally regarded as one of Boston's best engineers and entrepreneurs in the world of microprocessors. Uh, Ram started as, uh, at UMass as a computer and electrical engineer and realized his dream right out of school uh, to work at the legendary Bell Labs, where he was chief architect and lead designer for a number of highly complex ASICs. Uh, he left Bell Labs to found Siltec Corporation, which provided ATM and Sonnet design services for companies including Lucent, uh, SGS Thompson, and Sun Microsystems. Now, through a series of successful acquisitions, Ram ended up at Applied Micro, where he served as Senior Vice President, GM, and CTO, managing a worldwide group of more than 1,000 engineers. Uh, he left there to found Chill Semiconductor, which was acquired by International Rectifier in 2011 for uh, $75 million in cash. So, uh, incredibly accomplished guy. Um, since then, Ram has been an active investor and angel, uh, and he also serves on the Dean's Council of the Harvard Divinity School, so not your typical uh, uh, sort of uh, passion project for Ram. Uh, in part two of our podcast this week, we're going to spend some time talking about religion and entrepreneurship, and um, it's a really interesting conversation. I promise something you haven't heard before. Uh, focused on Ram's thoughts on the role and importance of religious thinking and ethical responsibility for entrepreneurs. So stick around for that. Um, I I really enjoyed uh, that conversation. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups. Backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio is radically simple. All right, uh, here is my conversation with Ram Sudaretti. Um, I hope you enjoy it. All right, so welcome, Ram. Thank you. Thank you for uh, agreeing to do this. Um, so your background is really interesting to me because it's not typical, uh, not typical of entrepreneurs, not typical of the other folks that I've spoken to on the podcast. But let, let's go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? Where, you, where were you born? I was born in India, grew up in India. I did my bachelor's in South India and then came to U.S. in 89 for my master's. Did you, uh, did you grow up in a big family? or? Uh... I grew up in a big family. We are a family. Um, my parents have nine kids, five brothers and four sisters. Wow. Uh, and where, where are you in the birth order there? I'm the eighth. Eighth kid. <laughs> last, last among the brothers. Right. And eighth among all. And I have one younger sister. Right. Uh, big family. My father actually was raised by a single mom. Uh, he lost his dad when he was two years old. And then my grandmother lost uh, um other son and daughter and brother and the whole family um, died due to either malaria or some kind of diseases. So she actually told my dad that he has to have as many kids as he could so that our generation survives well. Wow, wow. What a tragic story. And 
And was that was that typical of that generation? Or yeah, during the British rule in India, uh, the availability of medical facility, uh, medical uh, hospitals from rural India, was very scarce. Right. And the other one is uh, when there's a famine happens, when there's a malaria or chikungunya, some kind of a viral. Uh, it's just a sad story. Sometimes families or villages got wiped out. Right. And and did many of them come here or most of them still there? Um, most of them are here and uh, some are back in India, but their kids are here. Right. So almost everybody's kids are here. Right. Um, so they, most of them went to good professional schools, either engineering or med- medical schools. My, my father was one very focused on education. And uh, that's one he said everybody has to be educated, right. and um, and he paid for all our education. I you know speaking to Jit um, last week, and he was talking about the pressure on Indian sons to be either a doctor or an engineer. Those, yeah, are, those are pretty much the two. Yeah, those are the two professions that have jobs in India back yeah. then. Right, right. In the last fifteen years, you can find jobs with any other degree, but before that, before nineteen nineties, ninety five. If you're not a doctor, mostly doctor, and to some extent engineer, you have no future, no jobs. Right. Coming to America, what was that like for you? Was it exciting? Was it traumatic, a big change? It was exciting. I actually wanted to go and become a fighter plane pilot. Really? So I went to a... <laughs> Why? <laughs> what, what was I, it? I went to a military school. Oh, right. High school. Uh, it's one of the best high schools in the country. Um, so you have to really go through rigorous testing after fifth grade, both medical and uh, intellectual testing to get into the school. Right. And then they train you for seven years for free until 12th grade. And then they send you to military academy. So that's why I was so intrigued to go and become a fighter plane pilot. But then uh, my sister was in the U.S. already, and she actually wrote me a letter saying that uh, I can do much more here, a lot more good and a lot more... um, uh, stuff, fun stuff here than going into military. Right. So I dropped the idea. Right. Uh, but my father wanted me to obviously either go into uh, military or uh, become a doctor. Right. Uh, he didn't have an engineer um, in his remotest idea. And and was it, um, you had to tell him, Dad, I'm going to be an engineer. Uh, actually, I didn't. So I told him I will be a fighter fan pilot. Oh. But then when I didn't go, then I said I'll be a doctor. Right. So, but I didn't get into medical school. <laughs> you were my, saved by your own failure? My brother got into <laughs> medical school. So accidentally I, became, I went into engineering. Right. And um, that, in the hindsight, was a good thing. <laughs> right. You're one step away from being a marketing guy. Uh, right? um, so school was a positive experience? Excellent experience, well. yeah. Because they teach you leadership back in school itself. Yeah, and uh, good to others, and uh, it's a it's a well a discipline, um, both in terms of physical and mental, uh, competitive. Right, and that was my best experience. You know, one of the things that you are known for is is uh, you know the stint at the storied Bell Labs. Um, uh, you know, creator of the transistor and other very important. Yeah. Uh, so, um, did you did you go over there right out of college, or did you have I, some steps in between? I went uh, to Bell Labs right out of college, and. Uh, it was one of my dreams because I always liked uh, communications and uh, how to improve. Because I always liked to see how um, the phone was the main form of communication back. So it was fascinating for me, and I did electronics and communications undergrad. 
Um, so I always wanted to do communication, digital communication. So I did digital and computer engineering in masters. So it was. It so happened that um, I got an offer, and uh, it matched with my dream to work in a communications company. And that to Bell Labs was uh, prestige. So I. Um, Denied all other offers and went directly from school to Never work at Bell Labs. In retrospect, what was so special about that place? Why, why did that become such a cradle of innovation for so many technologies? Do you think? I think the uh, the funding is one uh, because AT and T was the mother of Bell Labs. AT and T was making a lot of money, uh, charging people every minute uh, they call. Sure, right. So the funding was not an issue. And uh, for fundamental research, you have to have money. And um, that was a ba- that was the number one, I think, um, plus there. And then the, uh, the guys they hired, really, um, people who worked on and got Nobel Prizes and patents and all this stuff. And for me to work there was really a great experience. And my boss was a PhD from Stanford and one of the best technical genius I ever worked for. And uh, that's really um, helped me uh, really shape my rest of the future. Are you troubled by, uh, you know, it's hard to find money for research these days. You know, it's been beaten off the income statement of our biggest corporations. There's less spending from the government. Um, You know, the Obama administration sort of advocating for this trip to Mars, which hopefully some good things will come out of. But, you know, what's your perspective on on that? Uh, Is it something that concerns you today? It concerns me, yeah. One of the reasons why we as a country um, created so many good stuff for the world is because of both government research, government funding that came to universities, as well as companies too, but the big companies survived and spent a lot of money on research, whether it's Bell Labs or IBM or digital. Um, So that is, those kind of companies disappeared. And nowadays it's all about uh, Wall Street and earnings and uh, stock market. That's that's how everybody's running. Uh, But on the flip side, um, on the good side is and now the rich companies like uh, Google and Facebook uh, and Amazon and Tesla, these guys are definitely um, embarking on some bold stuff. And then, uh, but that is not enough. We need uh, more government support. Right. Immigration is the other engine of that. I, I don't know if you saw, but uh, America won six Nobel Prizes in engineering and sciences and all of them went to first-generation immigrants. Absolutely. Who, who is Einstein? Yeah, that's right. He was a first-generation immigrant. That's right. That's right. All right, so you, you sort of achieve your dream, right? That's a blessing and a curse, and now you need a new dream. And so how do you go from an engineer at this you know, storied uh, place to an entrepreneur? So when um, I always wanted to create a business of my own, um, and I was working at Bell Labs, um, I was learning a lot how to work with the people, uh, teamwork, and how to be competitive and some innovation uh, going on. But then I saw, um, one way it was good that we were charging a lot of money as AT&T um, and getting a lot of revenue. But I, uh, when I call India, uh, I was paying like $2.50 a minute. And I thought there has to be some other way to do it. And uh, internally, we were sending emails for free. Um, and there was no external email. And um, internally, the voice, uh, we were doing it for free. 
So there should be something out there. So I was always thinking about this whole voice over IP and taking, making the voice calls much cheaper. So you can call your mom for hour and half an hour and it doesn't cost too much to just call parents anywhere in the world. Um, was very expensive, and that which is a sad thing. So in the say at the same time, I saw Cisco and so many router companies just popping up to do this, big routers, and internet is booming. And then I said, this is my time. And I quit Bell Labs in 95 to start this Packetor Sonnet uh, chip company. And um, that worked out well. There's so many skills involved in running a business that you don't develop as an entrepreneur. Did you, were you part of a team that figured that out, or did you just have to figure it out on your own? Um, it is a um, chicken and egg situation. Yeah. Um, so when I was coming out of Bell Labs, um, actually, first, it was hard to leave a great job in a great company. Sure. And I was in the fast track, uh, doing very well. And uh, I was designing really a state-of-the-art switch, uh, ATM switch. AT&T was splitting into Lucent and AT&T. So one of the options they had, and they wanted a voluntary retirement, and they offered packages across the board. And then one, uh, not many people took it, and then they added additional $10,000 if you go and start a company. So that kind of pushed me over the... Wow. Uh, Why? Why? They, did, they, did they take equity in the company? No. They, they just said, hey, this is part of uh, your layoff package or uh, separation package. Yeah. So most people who left are uh, good people they wanted to retain. Yeah. yeah. So in, I think they wanted to avoid lawsuits. Or they offered these packages to everyone in the company across the board. So the best people took those packages and left, including my boss. Wow. I mean, it's enlightened. Um, you know, I can't imagine a company doing that today, but it seems foolish from their perspective. Absolutely. And IBM did it in the 80s. They didn't learn from that. Yeah. So uh, that was, um, for me, that was good. It's an additional 10000 I bought a computer for $5,000. It was $5,000 to buy a big, nice computer. Right. And $5,000 license, a simulation license, and started the company in my second bedroom in my apartment. And then I went to VCs and nobody would give me money <laughs> because they said, oh, you don't have experience of managing teams. And um, so it was a tough game. Then I said, um, I will start a consulting company so that I have the revenue coming to fund my product. Uh, that's how I started a consulting company and then started this product. Uh, and then I ended up having a customer. That's when then the VC started coming. Right. So when I wanted money, nobody wanted to give me money. When I started having customer and revenue, then I had more subscription than I needed. Right. Revenue trumps capital every time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and what was the product idea? What, what problem did it solve in the world? Um, I was trying to take the uh, voice and uh, run it in IP networks. So the first step is to do a packet over Sonnet. Sonnet networks were the mostly used wide area networks. All the switches are Sonnet switches. So if I can do those um, and provide those chips to the existing router guys, that would be a great thing. And luckily, many companies are popping up. And the Cisco's of the world, Junipers and all these guys started thinking about it. And uh, it kind of really lined up very well. And and, um, uh, optical side too. And was it a smooth journey for you or, uh, you know, bumpy or how did, how did it, it go? Was, uh, it was smooth because the timing was right and the uh, product was right. Product was timed right and the customers were there. And then uh, within a year, I had 
almost 1.5 million in revenue three chips uh, 17 customers and then there were five offers to buy the company yeah within a year right so we closed the round first round of financing in uh, january of 98 we sold the company in march 99 huh. and did you struggle with that decision um did you want to hang on or i did struggle with the decision because uh, my board wanted to sell not sell or sell to a different company that would give cash because we had multiple offers right but i want to go with the company that would give stock um because that company would retain all the employees and there's no overlap but the company that offered cash would probably get it of some employees right um so on that particular instant maybe it's good for investors they would have made little more money um on that day but not good for employees so that actually um really triggered my own um soul searching what do i do now right right um so i used my upbringing and my religious background to see that what is good for everybody maybe it's little good less good for one group versus but in another instance it's more good for one group and really bad for another group so that was the one i had to struggle and really convince my board that we would sell to this company that would offer stock only and i said once they buy us our stock will skyrocket and so did and our purchase price was 120 million within a year it became 3 billion dollars wow and then for every 2 million investment the investors walked away with 800 million dollars wow so if they sold it for cash if i listen to them they would have walked away with like maybe 20 30 million dollars right so in the hindsight my thinking that hey, i need to protect all the employees and grow the business um not only help that way but help financially everybody including the yeah. investors it's a case where uh doing good men doing well when you counsel entrepreneurs who have faced a similar situation um there were obviously other factors at play other than trying to protect your people like if someone is thinking about selling their company and they're evaluating a cash offer versus a stock offer like what do you have general advice for someone in that position about how to make the choice yeah because the entrepreneur especially entrepreneur ceo uh, and the management team would know their business more than anybody else they know their business because they are in trenches they are traveling they are meeting customers they know the com- competitors um so they know the business uh very well compared to board or anybody else right and they know their competitors their customers so they have a lot more information than you would think so i would tell the uh, entrepreneurs that hey you have a lot more information listening to the board blindly or thinking that board will direct you that would be a uh polish thing it is uh, better to really put everything on the table in front of the board and say hey this is the situation uh, let's make informed decision that would be the right thing you know you have the successful exit what did you do next i stayed with the company because i was still young under 30 years yeah i did not leave i stayed with the company because the company gave me a um, nice position then i it was good experience for me because we went to uh, wall street and raised 800 million dollar secondary offering um and then we went and bought a 300 billion dollar public company mmc networks so they were all reporting to me right so i was um, gaining skills managing worldwide groups um, i had like 1000 engineers working for me uh, from israel france uk 
Canada, India, US, many locations. That was a great thing and building business and selling in Europe and Asia. So that was great experience I was gaining. So I didn't feel the need like many other entrepreneurs to sell and leave, right? So I stayed there for uh, almost five and a half years. Did you did you miss you know being an engineer? Did you miss being an entrepreneur? I do. Yeah, I was designing even after we were acquired. Even three years after, even when I had like eight hundred people reporting to me and yeah. uh, and about eight seven design centers, um, and then doing business, I was still designing when I was flying and I was coding. Right, I missed that. But then I figured out that if I keep doing that, maybe I can do larger. If I can get away from that, I can do larger work. But I keep going back, yeah. and then one day. My boss said, "Stop it! This is end of your designing. Uh, yeah. So you need to because when I travel, if I'm in uh, Germany, closing business with uh, Siemens, for example, and they found bug in my code, I'm not available to fix it. Right. So that was one of the reasons I had to stop. And then after that, I didn't. I participated in architecture, but not coding. Yeah, it's hard to let go. Um, you know, you, uh, you, the more you love something, the better you get at it. And the better you get, the more likely you are to be promoted to a relevancy. You know? Absolutely. Uh, and and that's, sometimes you feel like you can do it faster. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that but it is, doesn't scale. doesn't scale. And, uh, but I, I hired really good people and trained them. And uh, we've done well. And then after five and a half years, um, I, I was also loyal to my boss, who acquired us and who gave me all the um, three-fourths of the company yeah. and acquisitions, other acquisitions. Um, I looked at 53 companies, bought seven startups and one public company for $300 billion uh, and one division from IBM. Um, so that was a good experience for me. But he left in 2005. Then I said, I'm leaving too. Yeah. And then 2006, I started immediately another company called Chill Semiconductor. Right. It's about the people. Right, personal loyalty, loyalty transcends organizations yeah. and uh, hiring good people, staying with them. And the other thing why I had to stay that long one is loyalty, uh, my loyalty to my boss, but my loyalty to my people. Sure. And the market was yeah, they were there for you. Tough situation. Yeah. Two thousand one, uh, after the technology bubble burst, dot com bubble burst, everyone everybody went down. In fact, the optical companies and the companies like ours got hit big because Cisco, Nortel, Lucent, everybody got hit, our customer base. A lot of our customer base also closed doors, Sycamore and a lot of router companies, they, they didn't survive. So in 2001 to 2003 was a tough time in our industry. So I had to stay back and turn it around, take, as may, um, take care of as many people as possible and retain and really, it was not the right time to go start right. another company. So by 2006, that has sort of blown over. We're on to a new cycle. And um, tell us about the next company. What did, what did it do? Next company was in the power management. Um, and it's still an IC company, but a different market. I was a communications guy all along, from Bell Labs days to ICs and systems. Uh, power management was not my area of expertise. But I felt like efficiency with the gas prices back going higher back then, and then the climate control and the global warming, all these issues coming up, I felt like the efficiency and really we are wasting so much energy. Uh, if we can do something there, not waste it, first of all, stop wastage. Uh, and uh, that would be a good opportunity. So I thought power management would be the right place for me to venture in. So I teamed up with a professor from Canada, 
and uh, we did uh, power management chips for computers, uh, servers, and gra graphic chips so that the uh, Intel processors and, uh, and NVIDIA processors, they don't consume power when you are not using it. Most of the time you are reading email or typing a document, sending an email, so you don't need that much power. But the processors were still consuming a lot of power and wasting. Hmm. And when you are, when you don't switch off the computer, it still consumes power. So I thought there might be an opportunity to put digital power so that it's much more intelligent. Because before it was analog power and that's why they were wasting. They right. had no clue. That's how we came up with those chips. But then we got hit um, with the 2008 um, meltdown and uh, we survived that meltdown and uh, we powered through and then we were successful again we sold the company at some point you you made the decision to um uh move to the investing side right you know tell us about that decision and you know why you did it and and what it was like so when i was doing my own companies and when i was working in a large public company i was investing along the side of vcs a little bit of money back then um but I also found that the, the young entrepreneurs are the first-time entrepreneurs need some more help than what the VCs could provide. So I said, okay, I, now that I've kind of freed up, um, I can invest and get involved and help these new CEOs or young entrepreneurs uh, with all the experience I've gained um, from both sides of the spectrum. That's how I started investing in uh, companies uh, along the side of VCs sometimes and sometimes as an angel. And that's uh, really um, exciting for me. Of the things that you've invested in now, what are you excited about? What do you think is really interesting that's happening out there? I'm very excited about with um, on G20 companies. <laughs> yes. G20 has the right um, um, DNA and right approach to investments. Um, to invest in good people, people who can do things together as teams and have worked together as teams and has a lot of loyalty and trust. And um, that is what I liked about G20 and um, ability to help locally. Um, and after 2010, especially or 2005, Boston area kind of lagging behind Silicon Valley. Right. Um, and we lost a lot of our feeder companies like Bell Labs or digital equipment and a lot of large companies. Um, so we need a lot more people uh, from the entrepreneurial community to mentor the younger generation. You know what struck me uh, talking to Ram, for all his outsized success, he has this remarkable tendency to frame things in ethical or moral terms. Uh, his whole imperative for starting companies and his decision about you know when to sell and for what currency. I, I was fascinated by that. His observation, you know, he's a first-time entrepreneur. Somebody puts a giant pile of cash in front of him, uh, and his immediate thought is, you know, what's right for my team. Uh, his various career choices, many of them made on the back of personal loyalty, uh, either up or down. Uh, it's a philosophy that served him well. Uh, for the second part of our conversation. Uh, we really focused on another aspect of, uh, of ethics, which is religion. And that conversation began with a discussion of HDS. Speaking to a bunch of people who are, are uh, alumni of HBS, 
and uh, you are actually uh, very much involved in, in HDS, uh, which people are in, in this audience much likely to be less familiar with. You know, what is HDS and, and how did you get involved with it? So HDS means a Harvard Divinity School. So I, as I said before, I was always um, using my upbringing to make some business decisions. So I always thought that um, whenever I talk to a lot of successful entrepreneurs or business people, uh, they always say that, hey, it's my upbringing. Now, what is that upbringing, right? So there has to be something in their upbringing that help them, uh, give them strength at the time of loneliness and at the time of uh, tough times. Right, dark days for every entrepreneur. Dark days, and uh, you can still do it right. So then I was figuring out that, um, thinking like, hey, for thousands of years, people have done business before the business schools existed. So people have run, uh, written contracts and they have run, done very ethical way. Um, between Arabs and Chinese and Chinese and Europe and there's so many contracts were done thousands of years ago and um, goods were exchanged, the trade. Um, so there, in that case, there has to be some kind of a training, some kind of upbringing that helps uh, you be successful in business. So then I um, always thought whether uh, it should be a business school or a divinity school that should do this. Um, divinity school is where I nailed because uh, there's an authenticity there. And the business school, people already come there with um, financial background, financial engineering. So it's great to learn financial engineering there. And the two things that are required to be successful in business are uh, not only financial engineering, but uh, human engineering. Hmm. On the human engineering side, there's organizational structure, organizational planning, all that is taught in business school. But not everything is the same. The things that I faced as an entrepreneur multiple times uh, and as a large company when we had to lay off people or when um, we went through tough times in 2008, none of the business books have it. If they have it, um, if they have all the solutions for every problem, then there won't be a problem. Um, so every problem is different. It could be a human problem. Somebody has a, some issue at home and they couldn't do well at work that day. That doesn't mean that person should be punished or whatever. So you got to go beyond and organizations and maybe hiring from outside uh, rather than promoting your own internal guy if the internal guy is not, people are not qualified enough. So there's all this human side of engineering, human capital that is not very well written um, in any of the business books because every situation is different. Every human being is different. Every culture is different. Every upbringing is different. So I thought uh, the divinity school, which teaches multiple religions and no religion too. So they actually have um, every aspect uh, taught there from all over the world. So and they also embrace gays and lesbians. They have every kind of person there getting educated and um, the research done. So if they can come up with a, uh, if I can uh, participate and um, partner with them to come up with some kind of um, principles or some kind of things that every entrepreneur or business person can learn, uh, then it would be great. I'm an HPS guy. Is it just that you think the cultural stuff is is more important, or is it underemphasized, perhaps, in the in the emphasis on business school mechanics? I think it's underemphasized. Yeah, 
most of the successful people that everybody talks about, none of them went to business school. Right. Whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. Yeah, right. or, yeah, yeah. I didn't go to business school either. Right? Yeah. So to be an entrepreneur and build business, uh, you don't need a business school degree. Um, so, but business school degree helps. But there's more than that. There is more than that that makes you stronger and a better business person. That is what is missing. Uh, otherwise, you could be a crooked businessman or if you're a good businessman, still make a lot of money. Right. Same thing I tell the, uh, the reason why I'm very involved with the Divinity School is I want to tell the religious leaders also making money is not evil. Right. They should say that making, if we don't have money, we can't help people. So everybody cannot be Mother Teresa's. We need Bill Gates too, right? right, right. We need to be funding. We have a bigger population now. So, so in order to provide vaccines to all this population, we need money, right? In order to provide communications to these people, internet to these people, we need money. So making money is not evil. That's what we should get from the divinity school. Learning from religion is not bad. Religion is not bad if it is done right. That's what business leaders should embrace. If we can do that together, I think we have a stronger culture and a better future. Right. You know, I was with, um, had dinner with some fellow entrepreneurs the other night, and we were, we were talking about, you know, things that were happening, and this was a group I'm actually close to, and we can get past the normal, uh, you know, nonsense around how, how great things are going, right? And, and one of the things that we discussed was, you know, when you're a CEO, it's like, Two days of business strategy is a year, and then you know, 363 days of people issues. <laughs> you know? yeah. So much of it yeah. is just, it's just you know, building the team and making sure people are focused on the right things. And um, and how do you motivate people? Yeah, that is the big thing. Right? Yeah. How do you motivate people? Um, that is um, to some extent you learn in business school, but it's more than that. Yeah. And what is that more? What is that small piece missing in our our learning? is what if we can combine both together. There might be, it, it might be a full, um, everybody becomes a full person. Right. There's multiple aspects of, of religion, right? There's, there's religion as a cultural institution, right? And there's a lot of variable there. there are, there's the concept of faith, a very personal interpretation of your beliefs. And, and, uh, and then there are, are these... Um, you know, sort of ethical systems. You know, uh, I remember reading as a young man, uh, The Power of Myth, yeah. right, which, which was fascinating to me because I was raised as Italian Catholic. And to, to understand that there are a set of common rules of behavior that are common to most of the world uh, religions. Yeah, uh, it's like profoundly in, insightful. So that, but that's a separate idea, the sort of, you know, universal ethics of humanity. You know, in the, if you buy those three buckets, like, is HDS focused on one or the other, or is it about the way the three of them come together? I think they are doing all three of them coming together. And yeah. some people are focused on different aspects of it. Uh, but you could always take the best of it, what is needed for your day-to-day -day function. If I'm a businessman, I don't need to learn how to teach actually fundamental religion. But if the religious uh, uh, upbringing or beliefs uh, are any of the... Uh, things that religion can teach me to be a better businessman, I like to learn those. What are the two or three most important things that you take away from this? The things that maybe you could share with entrepreneurs? I think every entrepreneur has to be true to himself and uh, true to his people. And people, 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 right? So um, as long as you are open and uh, work as a team and provide all the information is needed and take all the information needed. 
I think then you have a team, a coherent team together. That is what I tell all the entrepreneurs that uh, if it is going good, say it's going good. If it's going bad, say it's going bad. Don't sugarcoat it and say, this is how we can make it better. Right. Or if you do this, we can be better. If you do this, we can be um, not better. Right. So that is the being very open and then understanding the other person's cultural aspects of it too is very important. The world is flat and we have to do international business. So understanding different cultural aspects of it uh, is very important. Right. So if I think I want to finish something by this Saturday, but it's an Am Kippur weekend, I can force some people to work. Right? Right. So it's important that we respect each other. You know, one of the things that I've, I've always believed and has been a sort of, you know, I don't want to, like a life philosophy for me is that, is that over the long run, most of the pain in life and in business is caused by distance from the truth. Yeah. You know, the truth of a That's situation, true. the truth of who we are, what we need um, as people. And, and as I, I get, old, get older, I, I, I definitely um, see more and more in some ways that idea is sort of universal, right? It's, it's something in, in, in play in business. It's something in play in the, in the personal aspects of your life and family and in, and in religion and, and in all the rest. And uh, it is interesting that as you get older, the things that were sort of bucketed and separate, you start to see patterns in the dots and, you know, that are common. Common, absolutely. Um, yeah. Between the, the you know, working life, the life of commerce and, the, you know, the life of the soul or the mind even, you know. Do you think most people want to do the right thing and, and can't for some reason? Or do you think that uh, the value of religion is primarily in, in, in calling us to do the, you know, what is right? What so, can you offer there? So that is, um, you, you hit it right. I think most people, almost every person, I should say, um, want to do the right thing and uh, do it in a right way too. But to do the right thing, I think they are missing that small thing that is, that they don't know what that is. So sometimes if you have a good understanding of the strength, and sometimes almost every religion can give you that strength. Uh, if you have that strength, and then you will be able to really conquer that small thing that's missing in every human being. Because we think we are doing the right thing, uh, but that small piece, and since you don't know that, uh, that's missing in you, uh, it's not the right thing. The outside people can say it's not the right thing. Right. So one way is to understand what that is and strengthen it. And uh, by being a little more open and taking advice and talking out lo um, loud, uh, that should help. So you see it as a means to clarity yeah. and, and to conviction. Exactly. To be able to see that thing and then act on it. and um... It's the conviction. It's the, it's, um, they might even know that small thing that they're missing, but they can't act on it. They don't have the strength, knowledge, right. Right. and power to act on it. Right. And if they can gain that, then they can conquer that. Ram Sudaretti, uh, religion as a means of uh, giving us entrepreneurs the conviction to do what we know is, is right. Um, boy, you're not going to hear that on any other venture podcast, people. All right. Uh, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups. Backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. It's also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute. 
to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. I want to encourage you to do the right thing between now and next week's podcast. Thanks. Have a great week.